Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Jessica Peltz Zadulov, co-founder and general partner at Hannah Gray. Hannah Gray is a first check venture fund investing in founders reimagining everyday experiences to improve work and life, which she co-founded with Kate Beardsley, who's also been on the show and was really fun to chat with. In my conversation with Jessica, we asked the question, what are community-driven brands? What are identity-driven brands? And how are brands engaging with Web3 and her general thoughts and thesis on the metaverse? Without further ado, here's Jessica. Jessica, thank you so much for joining me. I know this is um, a long time coming. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm so excited to be here. I love the pod. Thanks. 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 It's super kind and a huge fan of you and and what you and Kate are building with uh, Hannah Gray and really excited to uh, dive in. This is going to be fun. So what was your first taste or introduction to venture capital and why were you attracted by it? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think like most people, I I stumbled into venture capital. I've been in New York for going on 18 years now. I spent the first decade of my career on the customer side at a global media agency. So I was running the strategy for brands like Gucci and Puma and 20th Century Fox and H&M and was really fortunate that I was running Verizon's media strategy from 2009 to 2012, their print and digital strategy. And that just gave me a front row seat in terms of how consumer behavior was changing more towards mobile adoption. Um, We launched the Android device. We did the first ever iPad sponsorships with Time Inc. And so, you know, that just gave me the bug around emerging technology and just the creativity that happens with it. And so around that time, I started just mentoring and working with startups in the space. Again, to timestamp, this was around 2011, 2012. And so at at that moment in time, it it was like, who is this non-technical girl working with startups. And I just very, very quickly realized that my background as a marketer was really helpful to these founders that were often more product and engineering focused. And so helping them find their first customers, helping them learn how to build a brand, build a community, do content strategy, do media strategy was just incredibly helpful at that stage in their business. And so that was really kind of some of my first interactions of just falling in love with working with startups and just the creativity that can come with these new ideas and working with these founders that just see the world differently. So I left corporate in 2012 to go to a startup myself. We were one of the first innovation boutiques that were connecting big brands with startups and really helping startups commercialize their business. So we were working with brands like Kraft Foods and Unilever and Mondelez and ultimately did some of the industry's first influencer marketing campaigns, mobile wallet campaigns, connected devices campaigns. So constantly just being at the forefront of how do you take emerging technology and and commercialize it for mainstream adoption? From there, that's when I went to corporate venture capital in 2014, which is really where I cut my teeth on venture capital. So for six years, I was running the corporate VC practice of a global advertising holding company, investing in all B2B, digital media, marketing SaaS type businesses addressing the needs of the modern CMO. And last year, officially, 
left that role to launch my own venture capital firm with my partner, Kate Beardsley, Hannah Gray, which is where we are today. But in general, I'd, I'd say just there's skills and character traits of VCs. And the skills of VCs, it's, it's not that hard to learn, to read a cap table or, or just to think through financial models that are just obviously going to be wrong at, at, at an early stage. But to me, like you just, you have to be obsessively curious about consumer behavior, curious about culture shifts and these macro forcing functions. And you have to genuinely enjoy helping other people and supporting other people's businesses and really be a connector and think holistically about your network to figure out who can I connect to who to just move that business forward. And, you know, those are just some character traits that just define Kate and I. Like we did, we just love that human part of VC. And so I think that's really what just attracted me to it as as a craft, both in terms of the curiosity and the strategy and the value creation that you can make on these businesses that are arguably shaping just generational change. I really appreciate that coming from VC from a place of curiosity. I mean, when I've had other venture capitalists on the show, they said, you know, what some of the things that we love about our jobs is is that we get to talk to people building different things, different products every day. So you always always have to have a, have a sense of a curiosity there, or else it's probably not the right fit. Yeah, well, it's curiosity, and and I would say it's also just just empathy. Um, I mean, it's just such a such a privilege to be in this position where you get to just meet incredible people that see the world differently and want to solve different problems, and then decide who you want to work with and help grow their businesses. So, yeah, I would say that that curiosity and empathy is just like yeah, it's the, it's the best. What was that transition like though? Since you came from. Um, corporate VC specializing in advertising technology startups and, and looking at innovation within advertising to starting Hannah Gray with Kate. Yeah, and and so Hannah Gray, we're we're a first check fund that's really investing in very customer centric founders, reimagining everyday experiences to improve work and life. So we're more of a generalist fund as opposed to more of a sector specific fund than I was at my corporate VC. I could not have a better partner than Kate. We've known each other for seven years. This is she's been investing since two thousand nine, and so her acumen as an investor is just exceptional, and and that's made my transition a lot easier in terms of just picking up a lot of the things that I didn't have to do at a corporate VC that we now do at an institutionally backed fund. So the transition, I would say, was was just a lot easier, just because I have a phenomenal partner. But the way we think about it also is one of Kate's best party tricks, which I, I like to say is a party trick. She she formerly was a founding member at Lyra Hippo and then was founding partner of, of Galvanize Ventures. So she's seen hundreds and hundreds of investments, um, over 200. And so I joke her party trick is like, name the sector, name the category. And she's she's probably worked with six or seven different companies in that space and can be really helpful to founders thinking through business challenges or what worked or what didn't work. And so taking that investor acumen and that range of experience coupled with my background, which is really around marketing and commercialization and branding, and it just really becomes a one plus one equals three. And so when we think about the value that we can add to founders and how we work with them and their businesses, it's just become a really nice complementary transition for, for me and for us as a firm that we're building. I have to ask, why did you end up naming your firm Hannah Gray? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So... Um, obviously, we we are we're brand people um, at heart. Kate actually started her career working for Martha Stewart um, 
And so living in her brain and really absorbing all of that and obviously coupled with my background, we wanted to create a, a firm and a brand that was really differentiated and recognized that human connection and that human relationship we have with our founders. So Hannah Gray is named after our daughters. They're four years old, six months apart. My daughter is Rhea Hannah. Kate's daughter is Gunnison Gray. And so there's there's a lot of different dimensions to our brand name. We invest in all founders. We are not a gender-specific fund, but we recognize that we're role models, not just to our girls, but to people everywhere that you can have a great career and balance a family. And that just needs to be celebrated as the new normal. And so couple that with the fact that, you know, as fund managers, we're here to create generational wealth, not just for ourselves and for our founders, but also for their employees and for our investors. And so when we think about it through the lens of venture being a very human business, you know, and and having that empathy, we have founders that have gotten married, founders that have had a baby, founders that have gotten divorced, founders that have lost a parent. And so it's also just a testament to that really deep connection that you have with your investors and with your founders, because these are long-standing relationships. And we like to say, think that we're a partner with our founders throughout that entire journey. So today, since you come from obviously a deep consumer background, where's the opportunity within consumer brands today? What are some of the trends that you're paying close attention to? Yeah. So there, there's a couple trends that we're really excited about. The first is really centered around the the creator economy. And, you know, a lot of that is that we're we're in the middle of the great resignation, right? I mean, for the past few months, 4 million people have been quitting their jobs. And and if you think of like, that is, that is huge. That is like the population of North and South Dakota, Alaska, Vermont, Wyoming, and District of Columbia combined. That was kind of a crazy stat that we saw. But the reason we think that this is so interesting is that we've seen this progression working with influencers since the early days of 2012. And, and we've seen this maturity from influencers into creators, whereas it started as really renting your newsfeed, brands asking you to, to create content with them to basically take advantage of their audience to promote certain products, to then influencers getting smarter and asking for, to do more affiliate relationships as opposed to just selling other people's products to now, particularly with seeing Gen Z come of age and ownership being so important and Gen Z consumers just wanting that authenticity, that now we're seeing the creators become the brands. And so where we really think there is going to be this next phase of challenger brands is the movement that we've been calling C2C, creator to community commerce. And so what we mean by that is that those creator-led brands, they have all the recipes that they need, right? They have a feedback loop with their audience. They already have a mass audience. They connect with them authentically. They speak to them directly. And so thinking about different infrastructure and tools that are powering business operations for these creators, we, we think are really interesting. We're already starting to see some of these emerge, things like Chamberlain Coffee and, and Wakeheart and Social Tourist, uh, Ani Energy, just to name a few. And so when we think about the, the next wave of consumer brands, we really believe it's going to be grounded in this C2C movement because it also doesn't need to be mass products. I mean, I love Kevin Kelly wrote a piece around the 1,000 true fans, which I know is referenced a lot, but we do believe that we're going to see a lot of these more bespoke type products, but it also doesn't need to literally be products. I mean, the, the future of consumer is is also, it's anything that is really competing for consumers' attention or, or their wallet. So it's not just going to be creator-led 
products and services, but also media and entertainment companies as we kind of start to see some of these incumbent media companies start to unravel too. So I would say that is one trend in particular that we're just really curious to see how it evolves is because that this coming of age audience of Gen Z, which now is starting to have their own purchase decisions, their own brand affinities, they want to be spoken to differently and that category advocacy just isn't there. So I'd say that that's kind of the, the first trend that we're really excited about. The second trend is really coming from we we did a whole deep dive around looking at like the history of, of challenger brands over the past decade. And what we really recognize is that these challenger brands really emerge from this perfect storm between experience innovation coupled with emotional drivers that had this this like macro forcing function on top of it. So the way that we we kind of started to sketch out this framework is, you know, when we look back around the first D to C movement, direct to consumer movement, it it was really centered around this experience innovation of cutting out the middleman, selling directly, removing that price boat with the emotional drivers around cost savings and this kind of human nature of wanting to help people, right? Like this is the era of buy one, get one, um, these like purpose-driven brands. And, you know, the forcing function for that was around the financial crisis of, of 2009. And so that really spawned this first wave of challenger brands of Warby Parker and Casper and things like that. And so if we just put a put a pinhole in, in that moment of history and then fast forward to the next one around digitally native vertical brands and where those were, this was an experience innovation really grounded in digital first brands that were very community driven. And so they're they're playing on these emotional drivers of consumers that were really around female empowerment and around confidence and around sustainability. And so if we think about, you know, what was really happening in from a, a cultural standpoint in that moment in time, like this is when Trump just won the election. This is like the Me Too movement. This is when the climate strike was happening. And so that era really brought us brands like Billy, who, you know, that that body hair campaign that they did was was really progressive. And, and like it just stopped a lot of people in their tracks. Obviously, Billy is a phenomenal company. Kate was actually one of their first investors. But then also companies like Lively that really took down Victoria's Secret in terms of women's empowerment around wild hearts and, and boss brains and talking about their busty bralettes. And so that really kind of defined that moment around consumer brands. And so if we think about like where we are now, there's a lot of shit happening in terms of just where we are as a society. And so when we started to peel the layers back around just the experience innovation, it, it is around a lot of new ways to purchase that are more convenient. You know, it's new channels through social, it's dark stores around distribution. And it's really around this like very destigmatized, unfiltered brand voice. And that's sparking this these emotional drivers of consumers that just like want to be seen. Like we're we're dealing with so much trauma and isolation coming out of this obvious forcing function of COVID that consumers just want to be given permission to be themselves and to have this sense of relief. And so products that are speaking to consumers in this very non-judgmental way is just really interesting. So we're, we're really excited about these products that are removing shame of people that might have been embarrassed to consume them beforehand. So this is thinking about personal care. This is maybe thinking about mental health products. 
maybe boldness or like men's health issues, things like that. And so we we recently invested in a company called August, which is really redefining period care for Gen Z. And this is just a, a phenomenal team that me as a millennial is like a little uncomfortable with some of the stuff they're they're doing, but Gen Z is just eating it up. I mean, the founder, Nadia, is incredible. When before launch, she had a TikTok following of about 6,000 followers. Now she has over 600,000. And the brand started out with around 2,000 before launch. They launched about three months ago. Now they have um, close to 40,000 followers. And it's because their their brand voice is so radically inclusive. They They purposely speak about it as menstruators, not as feminine products. And it's because it recognizes that, you know, one in six Gen Zers are LGBTQ. More than half of them don't conform with gender norms. And so it's it's recognizing that inclusivity that there are non-binary, there are trans people that also menstruate. And so speaking to them authentically and weaving that into their imagery, coupled with the fact that all their products are biodegradable, it's a carbon neutral supply chain, it's plastic free, it's, it's taking a category that has a high LTV that has no category advocacy and reimagining and redefining that experience that half the population has to create a brand that that is historically been really rooted in embarrassment and shame and instead celebrating it. So we're really excited about this trend around brands that that just remove that barrier and speak to consumers differently about these everyday products and services. So really like how I how I see it, because you kind of put these in two buckets and certainly there's a lot of overlap between them. But um, just so I understand correctly, on the creator side, you're interested in or you you're seeing this rise of brands that are creator led. We actually maybe have a creator at like the center forefront and this this notion of this difference between this shift from influencers to creators, influencers in that you're renting space, you're promoting other people's products, whereas creator-driven where it actually is, you have the audience, hey, why don't we go and actually launch our own brand since we already have the audience, right? And so, but then also there's also interesting shift too that you spoke about in the second bucket, which is from this, you know, maybe when social media first started and in the influencer era, this very aspirational era versus now where it's a lot more authentic. Um, and you brought up like, like the August example and you kind of have this this shift from being very aspirational to, to authentic in your actual branding itself. Is that roughly right? Yeah, I mean, the the creator economy, obviously, it's it encompasses a lot of different things. This specific trend is, is what we've been calling C to C creator to community, you know, a little bit of a play on D to C, like we'll see if it catches on it. Like creator led brands for sure is, is a term that people are using now, but that's really one aspect to it. But the word authentic is yes, of course, important. It's so overdone, but it, but it's also recognizing that like these creators are very raw and unfiltered and radically inclusive of their communities. You know, whereas millennials want, we grew up with Instagram and wanting everything to be like perfect and curated. And Gen Z is just like, we're good, YOLO, like, I'm just going to put it out in the world. And they they don't have that same sense of need around perfection. And so I think that that's also driving a lot of these incumbent categories of being unbundled that previously made consumers feel a certain way when they were consuming them unnecessarily because they were just like dressed up with marketing and like told consumers they should feel a certain way, like having to hide a tampon up your sleeve for for period care, as opposed to being celebrated and realize like, this is what makes human life possible. And like half the planet goes through this, like it is what it is. So I, I think there is just like a perception shift around 
reimagining these everyday experiences that is going to be really interesting for brands in the coming decade around personal care, around aging products, around mental health, um, things like that. On the C2C commerce side, putting like, you know, uh, maybe like an investor hat on here, how do you think about risk? Because since you actually have the creator at like the forefront or center of really like who you're investing in, right? I mean, obviously it's the creator's brands. It's also a lot of risk uh, to tie up in one person. Is it almost like tougher to make the bet now on these types of brands than maybe during maybe the, let's say like the first wave of, of DMVBs? Yeah, I mean, I, and, and to be clear, I don't know if we'll invest in creator-led brands specifically, like this creator is creating this, but what we're interested in is really the infrastructure that will empower that business operations, that manufacturing, that distribution and things like that. And so a lot of these creators, you know, they, they obviously they are today's small businesses, sometimes not so small businesses. But so what we're really interested in, you know, how can we really find infrastructure that decouples income from traditional work institutions to help enable and empower those types of businesses? That's really more of the infrastructure play that we're looking at. If there's an incredible creator with a huge following and like the price is right, we'll, we'll look at it. But in general, like we think about investing in brands through a, a, a handful of different perspectives. And so the first thing we think about is, you know, is this a category that lacks advocacy? So is, is there already like that comment that has the hearts and minds and, and like a, a cult like following of their customers? And then we look at it through the lens of, is this a product that has a high purchase frequency? Is there a high LTV? Is, is this a product that is grounded in desire or is it a, a product grounded in necessity? And so, you know, we start to do a lot of market sizing opportunities there. And then we really like to understand what is the experience or the product innovation? So is it an innovation around how they purchase it? Is it an innovation around the product and the materials, you know, what are they what are they doing that is unique and different around the, the actual tangible product that they're providing? And then something that we really focus on is just how obsessed are they with their customer? We meet some teams that just like love the design and love building things, but you know, we always kind of go back to what does your customer want? What does your customer need? How do you think about customer service? How do you think about your first hundred customers, your first thousand customers? Why is their behavior changing? Why is there, why is now a time to create an opening for them to try a new product? And how do you think about acquiring them? How do you think about building a community around them? So we go really deep with the founders on that because we we do invest pre-product, we do invest pre-revenue, but we like to really think about how the founders are just obsessing over the the use case and obsessing over that need. And then like, you know, we want to we want to know like what does the brand stand for? I mean, Kate likes to talk about when she met Billy, it was it was just blown away with how progressive Georgie and Jason were thinking about that brand voice and that campaign before they were launched. Um she actually invested before they even had a razor. So sometimes there there is just like that magnetism of the founder of of really having strong founder market fit. In the case of in the case of August Nadia at 16 years old started period.org to really elevate the social mission around period poverty um, and scaled it to over a thousand chapters and wrote a book about it. And her co-founder Nick started a Gen Z marketing agency. So they recognize that there's this huge opportunity of incumbent products not solving and understanding how to target Gen Z. And so 
we really look to understand why this founder has this just like deep passion for this category and this product and, and the customer and solving their needs to really create a movement around them and a, and a fanatic community around it. I'd say those are some of the things that we look for in, in terms of when we're investing in a consumer brand, some of the indicators that we see at the earliest stages that help us build confidence around why they're poised to break out. I know as well, another one of your your interest areas, I know that we, all, we, we alluded to it because it's certainly very important to the uh, creator economy and part of the creator economy, but there's a lot of chatter about you know NFTs, the metaverse, and a lot of excitement over different aspects to it. How important are NFTs? What's your perspective on NFTs in the long run? Yeah, so the, the growth has, has just been insane. Um, I, I just think I just read that they did over 10 billion in sales in third quarter, up from like around a billion in, in Q2. And, and so for, for anybody that might not be as familiar with NFTs, it's, it's also just important to recognize that it's, it's non-fungible tokens, but it, it's a little bit of a catch-all umbrella phrase right now because there's profile pick NFTs, there's generative art, there's collectibles, there's digital fashion, there's virtual land, there's play to earn. So there's there's just a lot of these different subcategories to be mindful of now. But if we want to kind of specifically look at profile pick NFTs, these could also become challenger brands around status symbols, which I think is just fascinating. So I think one of the most important things to recognize for purposes of consumer marketing is that NFTs are are not JPEGs. <laughs> In theory, like they kind of are, but they're, they're, they're the new membership cards. They're a gateway into these exclusive limited supply communities. And so when you are purchasing an NFT, it is providing you access into not just a new community that can give you a, a sense of belonging, but also a new sense of creative expression and a new virtual identity. And so what I just find so fascinating is like, so Board Ape Yacht Club is, is kind of one of the blue chip NFTs everybody's talking about right now. That's going for 30 ETH, 30 Ethereum. And so just, just for context with what Ethereum costs today, that's around $120,000 for this quote unquote JPEG. Like that's more than a Rolex. That's more than your fancy car, that's more than a Chanel bag or a Birkin bag. And and like you see these use cases of people getting Bored Ape Yacht Club tattoos, which is just the gold standard for brands. And so if I'm one of these luxury brands that is grounded in status, um, I would really be thinking about <laughs> what are going to be these new communities that are going to capture the attention of, of my consumer. And so when you when you think about what makes a person want to tattoo a brand on them, right? Like if, if we think about the psychology behind why somebody would do that, and it, it usually comes down to a few things, right? Like it's usually they have this like fanatic obsession with the association or with that membership community. You know, obvi obviously like a super extreme example is like people tattooing their gang signs. Like that's a terrible example, but like you, you get the point that it's like you tattoo something because you want the association. That brand reflects an experience that you want to emulate. So you see people tattooing like the Playboy Bunny or like the Harley Davidson logo. And it's like those brands like encompass an experience that you as a consumer want to have. Or it might be just like a meaningful personal connection with the values or the ideals of that company. Like you look at Apple, you look at Nike, like these are iconic brands that like consumers really identify with. 
And so NFTs and something like the Board 8 Yacht Clubs or Cool Cats or whatever it might be, it, it, it creates this sense of identity and self-expression and status and FOMO that are really resonating with people. And so every NFT community has its own flavor, its own subculture, its own tone, its own utility. But what's so interesting is that like we're starting to see more of the utility coming from these communities and these NFTs. And you know, that could be that could be airdrops, that could be whitelist to other drops, that could be access to exclusive content, um, that could be governance tokens if it's a DAO, it could be commercial rights to do whatever you want with your NFTs if you want to create a comic, have a t-shirt shop, like whatever. But it just it elevates the community and it elevates the brand. And so that's why I think from a from a brand perspective, NFTs in particular are just a really fascinating space to to watch right now because crypto is just like it sits at the intersection of like an investment asset class, but then it's also a, a technology and it's a culture and NFTs really just like embody all of that in one persona. So have you seen some some interesting like consumer brands partnerships with NFT communities? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're starting to see a, f- a few of them. So Arizona IST um, did something with Board 8 Piat Club. Dolce & Gabbana just did an NFT drop. Um, Time Magazine just did their first NFT drop. And, it, and I think it's really fascinating to start to see some of these incumbent brands work to play and experiment and learn in Web3. We're in the really early innings of it. And, and I think in, in particular, these brands that are not native to Web3 just really have a ways to go to learn how to connect authentically with within those new environments. And so when we think about kind of some of these behavior changes and these like lasting behavior changes as it relates to these technology paradigm shifts that we see and and we really believe that we're in right now, like we believe this is really a generational shift, it usually follows a, a similar pattern. And so first it usually will delight the consumer. And it'll be like, you can do something new and that's cool. So obviously in web 1.0, it was, I can send an email really fast. I can find information really fast. I can, and then in web 2.0, it was more, with social media, I can connect with my friends and see what they're doing really fast. So I think that brands are trying to figure out like, what is that authentic way to delight their fans um, and delight their community in in web three now? And, And I don't know if they've really figured that out yet, but then once we kind of, move along that path, it, it more so becomes, how do you start to create value for that consumer? And and I think that that's partially where VR could have fallen short, is that I think it had that delight component as kind of that first phase of a behavior shift, but it it was falling short around like the utility and really like what problem is this solving? And and so if we look at the value creation of Web 1 and, and Web 2.0, the value creation clearly started to be there as the app store was exploding. You could get your groceries delivered. You could connect with all of your friends around the world really quickly. You know, you can call an Uber. Like that utility and that value creation was there. And then to really make it lasting is how does that utility become like an addiction and how does that become essential to your way of life? Like you can't imagine life without it right now. And so from a web 3.0 and a a metaverse and an NFT space, like I believe that we're in those very early innings around delighting customers and delighting consumers around this. And we're starting to see some early examples of, of utility and a lot of promises (laughs) of 
utility, which is exciting, but you know, we still obviously have a ways to go around. How do we get to that like addiction to make this a way of life for consumers in the coming decades? But I completely commend like the brands, some of the incumbent brands, like I said, are Arizona, Time Magazine, Dolce Gabbana, that are that are starting to learn and experiment because you have to future proof your business. Like that's what this is all about. And particularly as we see the rise of social tokens with creators and things like that, they they are challenging the norm and traditional institutions in, in a way we've never seen before. And so it is important that all brands just start to learn and experiment with these new technology environments. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great point. And I think that it's true when there is like a new paradigm shift, you know, as a brand, you need to adapt. And it's true that you might get it wrong. Right. But at the same time, it's so early with Web 3.0 that I think everyone's just kind of learning. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that's really fascinating that we're going to see with Web 3.0 is, is just like we're really curious about not just the future of work, but specifically the future of virtual workers in this environment. And that's also something not just brands, but companies in general, obviously, as they're looking to fulfill talent, need to be mindful of. And so, again, just when you decouple income from traditional institutions, like what does that look like? So, of course, you can generate income from an NFT drop or play to earn games like Zedron or Axie Infinity are obviously just like booming right now. But we also think it's really interesting around like, how is the consumer behavior of the sharing economy going to translate in in the metaverse, in the virtual world? You know, is there going to be an Airbnb of the virtual world or a rent the runway? Like, I don't know. I feel like I just have this long list of questions of are people going to rent out their sweet digital property for events? Are people going to rent out their awesome limited edition sneakers to somebody? Are they going to loan out their limited supply generative art into somebody else's things? Like, how can that be another way to earn income? Which again, just ties back to the creator economy and thinking about how is going to look in the coming decade. And we're just, we're in such early innings here that I just think it's fascinating as brands not only think about their their workforce, but also what does that mean in terms of who are going to be the, the new brands that are going to just thrive in this coming decade? What's one thing that you would change, do you think, about venture capital currently? I think there's always a lot you can you can change. I, I think venture capital as as an industry started out really as a cottage industry and it's expanded to be much more inclusive. So I would say we're getting there on the diversity side, but you know, we have to just continue to push the envelope around changing the composition of who controls the capital and really just making sure we have more women, people of color and minorities in those decision-making roles because we just we want to be investing in products and services and, and markets opportunities that are reflective of the broader population. And so, I don't know, I feel like that's a cop-out answer, but given that I co-founded Women in VC, I just, I always believe that venture capital can, can improve on um, that side. What's one book that inspired you professionally and one book that inspired you uh, personally? I mean, I feel like one of my favorite business books of all time, which, which I feel like everybody says, has to be The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. And I think about that a lot just through the lens of these like micro actions that can happen to really inspire and find product market fit. So I really, I really love, love that one. On a personal front, God, I, I feel like I listen to more podcasts and read more blogs and substacks and Twitter feeds than I do read books these days. 
But yeah, I, I would say definitely shout out to um, what Rex Woodbury writes on Digital Native. I think his newsletter is fantastic. Um, Legion, anything that she writes around the creator economy is, is just always so thoughtful. Yeah, I'd say those are something of more recently that um, just constantly expand my thinking. So what's one piece of advice that you have for entrepreneurs? This is going to be a, a like a moment in time podcast, but I would say be really thoughtful about where you take capital from and how much capital you take and what valuation you take it at. We're in a really unprecedented market right now um, with valuations just being often disconnected from reality in terms of the progress of the business. And so something that we talk to founders about a lot is just how do you not only set yourself up for success with this round, but for your next round in 12 to 24 months and recognizing that Whatever valuation you put on your business is not just for today and to grow into, but you're going to be expected to two to four X that. So just because you might be able to get a really high valuation now, it doesn't mean that that's right for your business in the, the long run. We saw this movie before in 2014, 2015 with really high valuations. And a lot of those founders really stumbled in the coming years because they couldn't raise additional capital or they couldn't grow into that valuation. So I think that's just always something to be really mindful of. And of course, just make sure you have great founder product fit and that it's really something that you care about the customer, not just about the market, but you care about the customer um, to solve their problems. Jessica, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I would just say one more thing of for especially for, for founders out there that are thinking about starting a business is just like, if you don't go for it, somebody less qualified will. And so it's just, if it's something that you believe in, it, it's just now it's never, it's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. Love that. I completely agree. I completely agree. Well, Jessica, thank you. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you having me on the show. And there you have it. It was awesome chatting with Jessica. You can follow her at Jessica Peltz on Twitter, which I highly recommend. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 